Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast. It's powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. And this is quite an unusual episode of The Lens. We are in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. We're at home, we're on lockdown, and we're not, therefore, in the comfortable studio surroundings of McCann. And so it's at home that I will join my two guests this episode. The first guest is Jan Gooding. Jan has worked for a whole range of organisations, including Aviva, BT, British Gas, and more. She is the chair of LGBT equality charity Stonewall. She's also chair of brand purpose agency Given. My second guest is Joe Gilbert. He works with Fujitsu, the leading Japanese ICT company, and he is a cloud native engineer. I'll be asking him exactly what that means when we meet in a minute. We'll talk about a whole range of things in this episode. We'll talk about how companies and individuals can be more inclusive. I'll ask how I can be a better ally. We'll wonder how organizations can tread that line between showing they care and not being seen to be tokenistic or a bit trite. And finally, we'll ask how global corporations can communicate, even though that might be across many different countries in very different scenarios. Let's get to the conversation. Jan, Joe, welcome to The Lens. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Well, thank you for joining us in these um, strange and interesting times. I am going to start there. I'll turn to you both in turn about your own stories. But if I can start, I mean, Joe, um, we meet during lockdown. Uh, We're on the second day of April for our listener, just to cast their mind back. Um, How are you finding these, 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 these times? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it, obviously, it's affecting everyone at the moment. Um, it's a very unique position, even to be just working for an IT company that's obviously still functioning um, and working from home, carrying on as normal, trying to keep business as usual. It's a very strange time. It is. And Jan, you interact with so many people and organizations. What, what are you making of this whole coronavirus uh, pandemic? It, it really is extraordinary. Well, it's extremely difficult for all of us because we're doing our best to keep going. I work across five different boards and the level of activity in the last few weeks has been Mm -hmm. immense as wave after wave of new information arrived. So first of all, we were trying to get people working from home. Then we were trying to uh, respond to government offers of help and work out what we could take advantage of. And it's only really this week that I think people are, if one can use the phrase, sort of settle into it. People are at least now just trying to get on with their job as best they can from home. But it's very hard. And uh, particularly with the LGBT community, we're very concerned about people's mental health at this time. Yeah, I was going to mention that because, of course, when the Chancellor makes another announcement, we think of the financial health of the nation and of businesses. Would you ever share a piece of advice about, you know, particularly employers, you know, supporting their own teams at this time, particularly on mental health? I think it's been impressive how on this uh, the organisations, certainly that I'm in touch with, have been. I know people are going to a lot of effort to make sure their teams keep in contact with one another. I've heard of coffee drop-ins with people. So really making sure that they're encouraging their staff to step away from their computer, to take the exercise opportunities that they're offered. And actually 
probably the most important thing is talking about it and acknowledging it. Uh, people respond to these sorts of situations in different ways. People's moods go up and down. And I think the most important thing we can do as leaders is reassure people that it's perfectly natural to find this uncomfortable and uh, keep asking what people need to help them. Yeah, and on that, Joe, any any tip for your uh, fellow uh, locked down uh, colleagues? What works for you? You seem on very good form. Yeah, I mean, just keep engaged. It's It's very easy, especially when you're at home to sort of literally isolate yourself i know we are isolated but just to isolate yourself from everyone else it's so easy to do and you just need to sort of make sure that you are keeping engaged with your work colleagues your family your friends all of the above um particularly at work within fujitsu we, we're really um passionate about keeping everyone like engaged um I, I think within the various teams that i'm involved in there's always a weekly call a monthly call just a quick catch up a quick hello um especially within the pride network as well we, we really sort of home in on trying to make sure that these potentially not safe environments that are home are we are engaging with you and we are sort of keeping you on the right track i guess good well i want to quiz you more about uh, that network uh, a bit later on in the episode jan i wonder if i can uh, start with you i've got so many things i want to talk to you about but i wonder just for our listener will you take us all the way back will you just remind us your first ever job it's something i ask every guest on the lens well, I'm afraid I absolutely loathed my first job. Uh, I've been on record several times saying it, but I do feel rather sorry for them every time it crops up. My first job was at Selfridges, the oh. retail store on Oxford Street, um, and I was on their graduate management training scheme, and I was not cut out to be a retailer. The only good news about it was I had a two-week assignment working in their in-house advertising uh, division. And that was when I discovered what I really wanted to do, which was to work in advertising and marketing. Ah, well, lucky that happened. Uh, imagine you dealing with all sorts of complaints. Why, why didn't it work for you? I, I think, um, ultimately, I wasn't very good at customer service and I wasn't very good at slow periods of time. So I can remember acres of time working in ladies' dresses and no one came in. Um, and I simply wasn't interested in the merchandising of the department. I didn't know how to busy myself when nothing yeah. was happening. Whereas the the idea of, of what is your business strategy, what is your marketing strategy, how should you be communicating to attract customers absolutely fascinates me. And you became an awful lot busier. You've worked with Unilever, Diageo, British Gas, BT, and of course, Aviva. If you cast your mind back, would you select one or two pivotal moments in that career when things really did take a turn? I think very often my surges forward have come out of adversity. So I think the first key moment I would pick would be when I went on maternity leave. I, I was a recent board member. Um, I was in my early 30s and the first woman on the board and anyone therefore to go off on maternity leave. And I was actually sacked whilst I was on maternity leave, which was a bit disastrous, totally unexpected, but it caused me to start my own business. Um, it was when broadband arrived in my road, and so suddenly we were all able to work from home, which is ironical given the whole country is doing it now, but back mm. then it was a very novel thing. And because I was sufficiently advanced in my career, I had the reputation 
uh, and the credibility to start my own business. And we opened our doors with uh, Diageo, with with Gordon's Gin and Johnny Walker on the books, which was pretty amazing. So that was a really important moment for me because it caused me to be an entrepreneur. I started a business and we were working virtually. It was incredibly exciting. And I had an, an amazing eight years working in this very new way on fascinating brands and businesses traveling all around the world. Uh, so I think that's a real standout for me. And probably the second was um, going to work at Aviva, really embracing the, the client side, as we like to call it. I still talk like that. Uh, having started in, in agency world, I talk about clients. But actually going into a marketing department in a big complex organization like and this the is the insurance company Jan. the global insurance company and actually being given the advice before i went not to tell anyone that i was a lesbian uh, so grappling and navigating my way through that was also another really key moment of how do you uh, enter as a very senior director when you're told you're you're a woman. You work in marketing, which no one in insurance thinks is a credible discipline. I really wouldn't tell people that you're a lesbian as well. So that was quite a big moment in terms of leadership and understanding for the first time what authenticity was really about and how that uh, if you lack it, if you're not open, if you're hidden, actually you don't perform as well. And just to be clear, to understand that in context, Jan, at your previous employer, am I right in thinking that was? BT. British Gas, just before. Sorry, forgive me, British Gas, just before. Yeah. But just, just to help us understand, you had been, um, if I can say, out within British Gas and you chose not to be at Aviva. Just, just help us get inside that decision. It followed some advice, but talk to us a bit about what drove the decision and how you feel about it with hindsight. So I'd been married for 16 years. Um, I had no idea I had any gay inclination. I fell in love with a woman, to cut a long story short. And because I didn't know about the implications of coming out or what the repercussions might be, I just did when I was at British Gas. I told my boss I was out. That was it. When I joined Aviva nine months later, I'd learned, first of all, but actually not everyone receives that information in the way that you might hope. So I actually lived through the negative experience of friends and family not responding as you, you might hope, and also being very shocked because Ian Bainham was murdered in Trafalgar Square by teenagers uh, for being a gay man, and his sister lived with my lover at the time. So I was very close to that incident. It wasn't something that just I read in the newspapers. So I was very shocked that, that you could be killed in London for being gay, essentially, in 2009. So that was disquieting. So when I was then given the advice, I really wouldn't be a lesbian if I were you when you join Aviva, I took it seriously because I had not understood really, because I'd never obviously had the experience. I hadn't been hiding that I was gay. I'd never given it much thought. So I came out rather thoughtlessly. And I then resolved, having learned some tough lessons, that it would be wise to be circumspect. So when I joined Aviva, although I was out at home, if you like, with my friends and family, I wasn't out at all with my work colleagues, and then found myself navigating all the strangeness that then comes from trying to hide your true self. And take us into that 
Jan, because um, in a sense, that must affect your every working hour. Just help us understand how that feels and what, what we should be mindful of for anyone in that position. Well, anyone who identifies within the queer spectrum knows that coming out is not something you just do once. It's something that occurs in most unexpected ways throughout your day and your evening. And so what I found was I was hiding something about myself, which I'd never done before in my life, that was really very important. So for instance, there'd be an unexpected moment where I had some of the artwork. My lover at the time was an artist. She'd painted two enormous canvases for my office. People would come into my office and someone would say, wow, what incredible artwork. And I would then found myself navigating the pronouns of who had given it to me. Yeah. So I'd either say my partner's given it to me and I'd then be trying not to say she or her. Or I would say, oh, thank you very much. Yes, it's like this. And I wouldn't mention who'd given it to me. But either option that I was choosing to go down, I couldn't just say, yes, my partner, she has uh, given me this amazing painting. So there are yeah. these very small incidents happening all the time where you're going, do I say, don't I say? If I do say, what will the reaction be? And because I'd chosen to hide, in a way, you're not trusting anyone. And that really affects your relationships because... I'm not a natural liar. And so every time I told these small untruths, effectively, I was not trusting my colleagues. And it builds up and snowballs into a problem where there's going to come a moment when they might discover, because you slip up, because you're trying to remember what you've said to who, and then you get found out. And then people may say something homophobic, which would be distressing, or they may say, why didn't you trust me with that? And yeah. so it's incredibly difficult, complicated uh, landscape that you're navigating that until you've done it, it's very hard to describe how hard it is and how much it inhibits you just behaving normally because you're yeah. editing in your head all the time and trying to remember what you've said to who. Even that incident about the painting, you know, last time, did I say it was my partner or didn't I say it was my partner? And of course, Jan, the, the years have moved on and I wonder how much organisations um, have also moved on. If I asked you to generalise for somebody asking themselves the question about how they ought to be open or not about their sexuality, what advice would you offer today in 2020? Well, one of the alarming statistics is we know that 60% of graduates, when they enter the workforce, choose not to be out. And I think that's very sobering because people like to think, oh, young people are fine. They're all into this gender fluidity. It'll all just die out over the course of time. That's not true. Everybody's cautious when they go to work. It's an unfamiliar culture. So people are going to incline to be reserved. But I think the important thing for me, which is what I always say, Companies, firms, employers have to come out first. They have to demonstrate, and that's what rainbow flags and everything that happens in uh, pride networks within organisations, the whole signals you send as you're recruiting right from the beginning, you have to be out as, a, as an inclusive employer. And then people will readily be open because no one Rarely do people want to hide who they are. They'd much prefer to be open. But it's incumbent on the employer to come out first as an ally 
and then people will feel safe. Really helpful. Thank you. And this is exactly something that I want to ask Joe about as well. But I want to just say, Joe, it's lovely to uh, connect with you today. Thank you for joining us. Um, tell us about where your career journey started. What was the very first step? Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Ollie. Um, so for me, my first ever job was uh, 17 years old, um, and I got a job through my brother to work at the local butchers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, the stakes were high. Yeah, well, you could say that, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I worked there for around two and a half years. Uh, towards the end, I was sort of on and off with university. Okay, so pre-university um, and through university. Yeah, exactly. So it was sort of sixth form and then to sort of like the end of first year of university, I think. Um, from what Jan said, it was, it was very difficult to sort of navigate your in, sort of like your internal Rolodex of who you've come out to. And that, that I found particularly challenging at university, especially when you're going from different groups, different places, you're trying to remember everything about that and you might slip up. You just never know. And that, that was a constant worry for me, especially. Um, and, and this was Sheffield Hallam. Uh, you're studying business, but also with some technology in the mix. Yeah, so I I, um, I was there for four years with a placement year in between, um, and I studied IT with business studies. Um, so that, that's really where my sort of passion for IT and business sort of came from. Really, I'd, I'd done it as a as a course at A levels, and um, didn't really have an interest at that time. But then I sort of took the leap, which was probably quite risky. Um, but then I, I happened to really enjoy my four years there. It was really good. Definitely recommend it. <laughs> and and um, I've got questions about how you evaluated Fujitsu from an outside perspective um, momentarily. But just take us inside it a bit, because um, a cloud native engineer uh, is your job role. That sounds perfectly suited to these lockdown times, I have to say. Uh, just give an example of what it means day to day. Well, yeah, this, this is the benefit. So um, day to day, um, well, I, I mainly work inside the data space. So I pretty much focus on machine learning, AI, all the interesting stuff I find. Um, but then obviously with it being in cloud, it's very remote. So uh, I'm quite used to working from home. It wasn't that much of a surprise to me, but still the um, the lack of option to go into the office is still taking its toll. <laughs> so for just, you've got 130,000 colleagues, you've got customers in a hundred countries. So without giving away a state secret, what's an example of something you help a client to do? Just any example that just helps bring it to life. Fujitsu are really there to sort of push companies to be the best in their, their field. So, and just to have presence and connectivity everywhere. So one of the big um, customers is the post office and also um, London Underground. So Fujitsu um, sort of run all of their Wi-Fi signals and sort of connectivity in the London, London Underground. And it is often one of these companies that powers so many other things. It's sort of that sort of hidden force. Joe, can I ask you whether the company's attitude to LGBT played any role in your decision to join them, or was that not so much on your mind? Um, when I was looking for graduate jobs, it, it was sort of, it was on my mind, but it was sort of at the back of my mind. Where I would sum up companies, I would look at sort of the programs and what they offer and the sort of their, um, their, their sort of ranking in the markets and things. And But then I would also look at, at the end of that, what their stance is on the LGBT community, because ultimately that would be the final yes or no for me. And for Fujitsu, they're just massive on diversity and inclusion for all, all aspects, all walks. Um, so that's really what set me on aiming for Fujitsu, I guess. And I guess that's the reality that you see inside the company. But how is that clear? Because sometimes it can feel like peering through a letterbox, trying to get to know corporations. And to Jan's earlier point, for companies to come out themselves, um, what gave you those signals? 
I vaguely remember going on the social media platforms um, for Fujitsu Pride, uh, which was the Shine Network, which is now Fujitsu Pride, um, and seeing how vocal they were, how visible they were, especially in the Pride marches, and also the um, I think I remember seeing webinars that they did, um, just various different things that they do for the community, and also fundraising and support networks, and they have a really good um, employment support network. I think yeah. I'm saying that right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know that you play a role in uh, in the um, Pride Network um, today. Um, just give us a tiny example, Joe, of something that the Pride Network within Fujitsu does that you've seen personal value from or you, you really realize has helped others. Um, they really value being anonymous and being not visible because that's something that people really do struggle with coming out in when, sort of when they're in their working lives. So they offer a lot of um, support for people that aren't yet visible and keeping that anonymity. And just say a bit more about what you mean by that anonymity. What does that, what does that mean in practice? So it means not outing colleagues and workers and employees, because um, I think it's quite easy to do, especially, as we've said before, about trying to remember who people have come out to. Um, the Pride Network is somewhere that's there's literally a safe space for people that don't want to be visible. They can communicate with with us directly or they can sort of show their support in just by being there without necessarily being visibly there so yeah, we, and- we offer a lot of um anonymous um chat rooms um and also we have a um support app which is called buddy connect which is sort of created by fujitsu within fujitsu to yeah. and we the pride network definitely utilize that and i and i have to say talking to you joe and jan today makes me realize that this is something that has to include everybody. So I suppose my question for you, Jan, first is how might we, how might I become a better ally, if that's the right word, um, and just help us into that in terms of do's, don'ts, things to be mindful of? Well, I think being uh, an ally is an incredibly important thing, and you need to come out as an ally because, again, one of the things people misunderstand is this whole, why would you think I would have a problem? And my answer to that is, how would I know I wouldn't? So some of the quite trivial things are hugely important, like wearing rainbow lanyards, such a simple thing to do. But actually, that's a way of visibly showing uh, that you are either gay yourself or an or an ally. The Rainbow Laces campaign that, that Stonewall get behind has exactly the same effect. It's, it's usualizing. Uh, the idea that people don't have an issue with somebody being LGBT and giving devices for them to demonstrate it. The second thing is to is to educate yourself. You know, there are a lot of very good manager programs that, that companies offer so people can understand what are the specifics, for instance, around parental leave for same-sex parents. Um, is there anything you need to educate yourself on? So if you were to find yourself in such a conversation, you're not being clunky about it. So some of it's quite practical like that. And then I think it's about um, showing that you're interested to learn about the community more broadly. So most uh, internal pride networks hold events. They have talks and they have film showings and they, and they will invite people to come on pride marches with them. So, for instance, Aviva used to sponsor the prides uh, in York and they used to attend Bristol and Perth and London. And that's a, an opportunity for quite more of the fun side, I guess, in a way of standing shoulder to shoulder with co- colleagues and bothering to give up your Saturday in order to demonstrate that you're you're proud to be an ally and you're yeah. prepared 
to be visible uh, and 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 there alongside your colleagues. Yeah, and that shoulder to shoulder image is very powerful. Joe, would you add any advice to that for a listener? Um, well, what what Jan said, she really hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's all about being visible for, for as, as an ally and, and literally coming out as an ally. I think also allies need to be aware of the privilege they have, which I think is very easy to overlook in the sense that there's no constant coming out. There's no underlying societal pressure to do anything in most cases anyway. And also to understand the impact of like sort of microaggressions, things that, that are said as sort of passing comments that they're not aware that actually really affect LGBT people. Joe, it's quite a personal question. Would you mind giving us an example of that? Because some of these might be um, non-deliberate. Um, so, yeah, so language is a good example for this. Um, Jan was saying it previously about how um, the use of the word partner as opposed to girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, that kind of thing. Um, you do get sort of um, missexualized, I believe it could be a word for it, in the sense that people might say to me, oh, um, are you with your girlfriend this weekend? And I, I could then be like, uh, oh, no, not this weekend, um, which obviously would, would lead to a lie. Or I could ignore it, or I could then have to come out to that person. And, I, and I'm also wondering, Jan, about what some would miscategorize as banter which takes place when someone's not in the room. And I'm wondering how important it is for the allies to stand up against that sort of inappropriate um, comment, language, and so on. I, I wonder whether that's in the mix. Well, uh, well, banter is one of the most upsetting things, of course, because you get accused of not being able to take a joke and it was only a joke. And actually often, from my point of view, banter is outright discrimination and hate speech and then people hide behind the fact that oh it was only a joke to get away, away with it what you experience where allies can help you is both whether they're in the room or out of the room if i've been in the experience of um and i had it happened to me very recently actually would you believe it at a dinner homophobic comments being made when half the guests knew that i was gay and half didn't i found it absolutely impossible to speak up for myself and I'm the chair of Stonewall because you're you're running through your head. I'm going to cause a row the minute I say you do realise I'm gay, don't I? You've changed the atmosphere of the dinner. And the most important need at that moment is for what the people at at the dinner who knew I was gay to intervene and close it down. When you're not in the room, it's even worse, isn't it? I mean, it you're is. not even there. And, and did that, Jan? Did that happen? No, no one spoke up. So um, so I chose to leave. So there was a mini drama. Uh, I didn't take it on, but I felt I simply can't sit here and listen to it. Uh, so I stood up and everyone knew what was happening because half the room knew that I was gay. So I caused a little mini incident. But what, but what people don't understand is you don't want to be the one always being the gay activist, the one who's always punching the bubble, the one who can't take the joke. And allies are absolutely vital when you're frozen in that moment uh, to intervene and speak for your, on your behalf. I cannot tell you how much it's appreciated um, when allies turn up like that. Yeah, that's a really powerful message. Thank you. C can I ask you both? Um, we've heard over the last few months and years about this so-called greenwashing, purpose washing. And I was just wondering about companies who want to tread the line between signalling um, their inclusion, their inclusivity, 
whilst not being seen to be tokenistic or crass, um, whatever the equivalent in washing might be. Joe, have you got any thoughts about that? I think it's it's very easy to see a company's um, intentions, especially when there's sort of financial backing behind it. You see, you see a lot of, um, especially around Pride Month, people um, or businesses advertising for their products that are Pride products, but then there's no real um, de- sort of dedication to the LGBT community. So you see that they're not sort of giving anything back, um, whereas whereas other companies might donate certain proceeds to charities of, of LGBT kind. So it is, it is quite obvious on the the intentions and if it, they're just trying to sort of um, greenwash, like you said. Mm. So if a company was only going to create, let's say, a special product for uh, Pride in a given year, if it wasn't backed up by those other investments, if you like, you, you, would you go as far as to advise them against it? Or is there a case that says every little helps? Um, I think it, we, we've we've come so far in the past sort of 10, 10 years for that sort of visibility for these products and things. That sort of message of being out there is it's not completely done, but it's it's a lot along a lot of the way there. Yeah. So to not have any backing behind it, I think it is it's quite rude. Okay, interesting. Jan, what's your take on this? Well, I think I have um, a balanced view. I hope I can see that it's being treated almost like a retailing era. You know, it's summer, it's Pride. Let's get out the bunting a bit like you do at Christmas time. And in some ways, that's really welcome because it goes back to this point about visibility. And actually, prides want sponsorship. They need that input. And it's wonderful to have everybody joining in the celebration of the queer community. So I think that's incredibly welcome. And I get uh, bewildered by people's hostility sometimes at retailers and, and companies wanting to get involved. And the reason it upsets me is because retailers have a huge proportion of gay customers and employees. And so we want to see companies engaging with Pride and we want to see them joining in the party side. But Pride isn't just a party. Pride is also a protest. And that's what uh, Joe is talking about when it's, you know, remember the roots of Pride. Remember that the, the first Pride marches 50 years ago People were spat at and they had police protection and they were attacked and there was violence. And that was just by being visible. And people who are from the queer community, they don't forget those roots. And they don't forget that as I when I was on my first Pride March, I walked behind a small group of six people who had cardboard uh, posters with handwritten placards that said, we are marching in London because we cannot march in Istanbul. And, And we stand and we march to be visible in the UK to all those parts of the world, over 70 countries where it's illegal still. How can it be illegal to be gay? But it is. And in five countries, it's a capital offence. People are killed. So so given that, and um, it, that is a sobering um, thought to bring us back to, Jan, how do you advise, in many cases, global corporations to communicate because they want to keep their teams safe, they want to be authentic, they want to have a voice about these things. And yet, as you've already said, the circumstances in each country will change. And um, what, what, does it, what does it boil down to? What have you seen in terms of how large companies in particular communicate? Well, large companies are extremely important. And there's generally three strategies that they deploy. One is what we call when in Rome. So if you had a business in a, in a country where literally it was a capital offence to be gay, frankly, you wouldn't do anything that would put your staff or your customers in danger. 
And so, frankly, you probably wouldn't engage in the subject at all. And that's the idea is when in Rome do as the Romans do. There's another model, which is um, actually uh, uh, advocacy. So um, you would uh, no, sorry, there's one that, which is which is called uh, being like an embassy. So you would get organizations who judge that the climate in a particular market, say Singapore, is not so hostile that you wouldn't be able to replicate for your own staff exactly the same HR policies that you would have in other countries. So although the law is not supporting, you create this idea rather like an embassy where once you're in the building, for instance, of Fujitsu or Aviva, we have totally inclusive policies and you can take advantage of it. And if you're a gay parent, you would get the same parental leave as yeah. straight. And then you have the more uh, radical model, which we call advocacy, which is where business are actually advocating to change the law. And businesses often get into the rooms that local activists cannot. Big business have relationships with uh, the local government um, that is enviable, and they are able to advocate, as the name suggests, on behalf of LGBT communities and say, look, we employ a lot of people and a lot of our customers are LGBT. We really think it's about time you started moving the dial on these laws, which you yeah. say are passive and we never use them. But frankly, they're a, they're a sort of latent threat to anyone who's LGBT. And it's not good enough to say no one's been persecuted under these laws for 50 years. They're still on the books. And they yep. legitimise the hostility and discrimination that people feel in their communities. Because as long as it's the law of the land, it allows at a very local neighbourhood level for people to abuse and discriminate LGBT people. Yeah, and Joe, I don't know whether you want to comment on Fujitsu's approach as such. I am reminded, though, of the importance of the anonymity that you hinted at earlier to enable people to engage without um, being uh, um, public about it. Yeah, definitely. So um, as a company, when coming from sort of the top down, Japan are very, um, I mentioned earlier, actually, the, the transition between Shine, the previous LGBT group, and Fujitsu Pride. So um, now it's sort of, it's a recognized global um, Fujitsu thing that we have Fujitsu Pride and it is for the whole company. So from that perspective, it's very much coming from the top down, and but then localized where it can be. But there's a, about three or four um, pride groups within Fujitsu. You've got Northwestern Europe. Um, I think there's an Oceana and an Americas. And then also there's now, I think, re as of recent, a, um, a global pride for yeah. Fujitsu. Yeah. So obviously I'm within Northwestern Europe. And so some countries within there, you do have to ensure that the people there do feel safe, do feel secure, do feel open. Can I just ask you, Jan, just taking you back to the point about pride being both celebration and protest. And can, can I bring us back closer to home here in the UK in terms of work still to do, battles still to be fought, doesn't sound like the right turn of phrase, but what would you focus our minds on? Well, as we know, there's been massive progress, which is, which is not to be ignored in this country in terms of the legal landscape, an absolute transformation in equality for uh, LGB people not tea so much. So actually the task in hand in this country is to change society's attitudes. And this is why companies are so important because changing the law doesn't change behavior in society and in our workplaces. So Stonewall's work is very much focused working with employers to make sure that they do have inclusive cultures that is now supported by the law. Clearly what's happening in schools is critical because one of the things we know is that people are not born 
uh, discriminating against other people. Unfortunately, it's something that they learn. So education of all children about different kinds of families is really critical. There's now over 50,000 children who have same-sex parents, and it's very important that school children uh, know that, that that some people have a mummy and a daddy, some have a mummy and a mummy, some children are looked after by their grandparents, some children have a single parent. There are different kinds of families, and so what schools introducing, uh, not, not sex education, but just that there are these different social uh, constructs and different kinds of family is important. But there's a huge amount of work to be done still uh, for the trans communities in terms of uh, the, the legal landscape and uh, the way in which they can transition, and also the health care and lack of support that they have in that area as well. And just if I ask you to pick on one example of that, because a listener um, might not be thinking about it in those terms, what, what's an example of the changes that are being called for, certainly from Stonewall's perspective? I was thinking particularly around health care, how we look after everybody. Yes, well, what there is a huge lack of investment in trans people being able to transition so they require uh, both mental health support and to actually make the, the hormonal changes that they want to make to actually transition, frankly, to, to do what they want to do. There isn't the investment there. So there are huge waiting lists. So Joe and I can say we're gay and that's all we have to do. There's nothing else that has to happen. We simply declare it. Trans people are neither able, well, they can declare uh, I'm trans, but they can't get that recognised in law at the moment without an extremely prolonged process of getting their identity changed. So that's one thing. But neither can they actually get access to uh, the health care support that they need to transition physically, if you like. Yeah. Um, there, there are huge waiting lists, and it's actually incredibly distressing for them to find themselves unable to transition, either in the recognition of their identity formally in law, which is more than just their name, but actually their gender, but also to make the uh, physical transitions that they that they need to make. Yeah, no, understood. And actually, I would encourage anyone to look at stonewall.org.uk um, for, for more on uh, the latest thinking and campaigning around that. Thank you. Um, there are a couple of questions. In fact, a, a few questions I want to ask both of you because I ask every guest. I'm always fascinated to hear who you most want to meet. Joe, who would you most like to sit down with? We'll go quite quickly through this, but I'd love to get everyone's answer and we'll share those with the listeners. Yeah, mine would have to be Jane Fonda. <laughs> she's an incredible activist, actress. She's had an incredible life. If, if anyone out there isn't aware of Jane Fonda or her life, I would definitely recommend you look into it. I think there was a documentary that came out a couple of years ago. It's a brilliant choice. Great. No, thank you, Joe. Jan, who would you have coffee with? Gosh, honestly, my mind's gone completely blank because I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet um, Sir Ian McKellen and, and yeah. Michael Cashman, who are massive uh, heroes of mine. Uh, actually, the, the name and the person that's coming into my mind is Judy Dench, for some reason. Yes. Um, I think she's the most marvellous woman, and I think it would be an extremely entertaining cup of tea. I completely agree, and I can see it in my mind's eye immediately. What an absolute legend she is. Um, how about on your bookshelves? I can see um, uh, Jan is uh, surrounded by uh, books. What is a book you might recommend to a wider audience? Joe, go first, please. So I'm currently halfway through a book called Straight Jacket, and um, it looks at sort of growing up queer, mainly from a gay man's perspective, but um, growing up queer and just how 
little things that you've had during your childhood can really affect you. And it definitely pieced a lot of things together for me. And I imagine it will do for a lot of people out there. Excellent. We will share a link to that. Thank you. Uh, so again, of course, this doesn't have to be a business book. It could be any sort of book. Um, Jan? Well, the, the book I've literally just read and tweeted about is uh, Michael Cashman's uh, autobiography, One of Them. An absolutely brilliant read. Uh, I didn't know that he was a writer. He's written plays. Uh, and, and so that authentic, wonderful voice coming through, what an extraordinary man he is and what an incredible life. It, it's a fantastic book for anyone. You don't have to be gay to, to enjoy it and be moved by it. It really is a wonderful story. Excellent recommendation. Thank you. And that's Jan underscore Gooding on Twitter, if you're intrigued by what she is uh, sharing. So thank you, Jan. Um, final question. If you went back to your much younger self and just gave yourself a piece of advice, what would that be now you think about it? Joe? Um, obviously, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> but um, I think it would probably have to be to literally just be myself, be authentic and also unapologetic. I think that sometimes you, you, you fear, especially with coming out, that it's going to impact a lot of relationships you have. But, but after you do it, it, it really doesn't. It's, it's definitely a, a wall that you have to jump over. And obviously that's coming from a very sort of, I'm, I'm quite privileged in that respect that I am able to do that and able to say that, whereas a lot of people aren't. And can I ask you, Joe, on reflection about that process, is there any change you would make to how you did it and uh, who, who you did it to and what? time frame is there anything um again th these are personal questions so i hope you don't yeah. mind me asking i think everything happens for a reason but earlier is better in my opinion understood okay jan take us back to an earlier point in your life where where are we going and what do you say to yourself well on my twitter feed i say my mantra is embrace change because it's coming anyway and i i think that is you know as a young person you've really got to get your head around the idea that that change is coming your way and therefore you have to ride it and, and find your way of getting through it. But the most important bit of advice, I think, is to be bold because I profoundly feel that every individual really matters. Often we think we don't count. We think our voice doesn't count. What we do doesn't count. Um, I'm not a natural leader. But actually, every single person really matters. And you being bold and speaking up your truth, whatever that is, is a massive contribution to changing the world for the better. Yeah, here, here. That's a brilliant note to end it on. Well, can I just notice, Joe, I would have loved you as a guest under any uh, circumstances, and uh, especially in these unusual times. So thank you for embracing it uh, so readily. And I do on that note just want to acknowledge the support that Fujitsu have given to us right from when Lens uh, the lens was just an idea. So thank you, Joe. And thank you, Jan. We share um, so many, um, you know, uh, allies and friends in common. And um, it's just brilliant to get time with you today. So thank you, Jan. And thank you, Joe, very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.